Biden administration announced a plan for annual COVID-19 boosters beginning this fall. The president has also requested $74 billion from Congress, which has yet to pass a new line of COVID funding to support the first tranche of new boosters this fall. Juul Laboratories will pay a $438.5 million settlement to 34 states and territories for explicitly marketing its product to children. This is American Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Today, we're talking about organ transplantation and the outdated, broken system that manages it in the United States. But first, I want to explain a juxtaposition. There are literally two moments during my medical training that took my breath away. The first was the first time I saw a living brain. I was observing a craniotomy, an open brain procedure, and after they removed the skull, I saw a pulsating brain. That's right, the brain pulsates in the skull as blood pumps in and out of it. But that's just a cool story. The second moment is actually the subject of our show today. I got to participate in a heart transplantation. The patient was a relatively young man with a genetic form of heart failure. His failing heart struggled to pump blood through his body, meaning that it often backed up into his lungs, leaving him lethargic, short of breath, even after a quick walk. His fingers were clubbed, a telltale sign of chronic lack of oxygen. He'd been on the organ transplant list for years. And this, this was his day. Our surgical team had been in constant contact with the team that was flying his new heart in from a nearby town. It had previously belonged to a young man in his mid-30s that had died of blunt trauma to the head in a motor vehicle accident. He wasn't wearing a helmet. That's one of those eerie things about a transplant. There's an asterisk on it. While a new organ can save a life, it also means that another was lost. A brutal reminder of just how tenuous our existence can be. Our patient was prepped and ready. His chest opened just as the new heart made its way to our operating room in a cooler. That's right, a living heart packed in a cooler. We connected the patient to a cardiopulmonary bypass that would act as his heart and lungs all at once as we drained and removed his diseased heart. After a few cuts, the old heart was out. The new heart was put in and connected to our patient's great arteries. The blood was slowly drained out of the bypass into the new heart, and then it was shocked back into rhythm. Just like some plumbing, the whole system was checked for leaks, and just like that, our patient had a new heart. It was literally the closest thing I'd ever seen to a miracle. The fact that we can do that safely, routinely, consistently is a remarkable feat of human ingenuity and the will to live. But today, we're not talking about the miracle. We're talking about all the bureaucratic work, all the waiting the young man did before we could transplant his new heart into his body. Because despite our technical prowess at performing organ transplantation, the system that procures, allocates, and delivers organs in our country is deeply broken. 33 Americans waiting for transplants die needlessly every single day because of the inefficiency of the system. Back in the 1980s, Congress passed a law that offered contracts to a system of organ procurement organizations all managed through a broader organization, the United Network for Organ Sharing. But those organizations were given government monopolies, singular contracts that, in effect, shielded them from any requirement to meet standards for effectiveness, efficiency, or safety. Without any competition and shielded from any real oversight, they've stagnated, and Americans are suffering for it. I wanted to understand more about the system that manages organ transplantation in the U.S., how it started, why it's broken, and what lawmakers and activists are doing about it. So I reached out to Greg Siegel, co-founder of Organize, an advocacy organization dedicated to improving the organ donation system in the U.S. Here's my conversation with Greg Siegel. All right, we're recording. Um, let's do this. All right, can you introduce yourself for the tape? I'm Greg Siegel. I'm the founder and CEO of a patient advocacy nonprofit called Organize. 
Greg, how did you how did you get into this work? Uh, I got into it uh, uh, by accident and for reasons I wish I never had. My father, uh, who uh, we had believed was otherwise otherwise healthy, uh, got um, from one day to the next. He went out for a jog and he collapsed, and it turned out that there was an underlying uh, heart issue, uh, which we subsequently learned is a genetic issue and it has affected other family members and and likely will affect even more family members going forward. But he was out for a jog and he collapsed, and we took him to the emergency room and. Uh, they basically said a version of good thing you came in tonight. He would have died overnight. Uh, he needs a heart transplant. Um, so, you know, it was really sort of the zero to 60 uh, experience, which taught us a couple things uh, through the process. We really learned how broken the organ donation system is uh, and also learned that none of us ever get to uh, ignore my dad again and, and think that we'll ever hear the end of it. He, you know, he'd been complaining he didn't feel well. And I don't think any of us took him seriously enough. But, uh, you know, is thrust into it by accident, wish I'd never been here, but trying to make the best of uh, uh, the experience that we've had to, to drive reforms. And how long did your, your dad have to wait for, uh, for a heart? So it was about five years from uh, going to the emergency room that first day to ultimately uh, getting his transplant. Uh, there were a lot of ups and downs. He wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, quote unquote, on the waiting list the whole time. There were three open heart surgeries and there were periods uh, in his journey when he was too sick for a transplant. So it's, it's a fluid process, but it was, it was five years end to end. And is that, is that usual? Uh, how long do people generally have to wait for a heart transplant in America these days? Uh, it's not unusual. Uh, you know, it varies a bit state by state and certainly varies, you know, in our family, there, there's heart issues. Uh, if you need a kidney, it could take you 10 years, you know, in some states. And, you know, that also obscures the fact that a lot of people who need transplants never get a transplant at all, uh, which is to say a lot of them don't even reach the waiting list. It's not necessarily true that if you would benefit from a transplant, you reach the waiting list because supply demand issues uh, a lot of people need transplants. My aunt needed a transplant. She died, unfortunately, in need of a transplant, uh, but never was on the waiting list. So, you know, um, it, it can be a little bit fuzzy when you say how long somebody uh, waits, but five years, certainly, uh, you know, I consider him lucky to wait five years and get a transplant. A lot of people never get one at all. And to your point, at first, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about uh, your aunts. Um, you know, to your point, though, there are going to be a lot of folks who are waiting on a transplant list, they meet the requirements to get a transplant, and then either they pass away uh, for need of that new organ on the list, or they deteriorate to the point where um, they're no longer candidates. Uh, how often is that happening uh, to people in our country? So 33 people die every day who had already re reached the waiting list, uh, either because they died while they're on the waiting list or they were removed from the waiting list for uh, what is technically termed as being too sick to transplant, uh, many of whom are going to die subsequently. Uh, so that's 33 people a day, uh, which, of course, then also obscures you know, the point I made before is that so many people, my aunt included, need a transplant, but because uh, if you have no chance of getting it, uh, transplant centers don't list everybody for transplant, they, you know, there's 500,000 Americans on uh, dialysis today. Uh, most of them would benefit from a transplant. You don't put everybody on the transplant waiting list because there just aren't enough organs to serve them. So 33 people die every day after having reached the waiting list. And of course, you know, repeating myself now, but many people never reach the waiting list at all. As you think about your dad's experience, the experience of other people uh, in your family, what, as you started to look into the system, did you start to learn about both the ubiquity of that experience and then more, more importantly, why it happens? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've had two experiences uh, here. One, uh, just as a, a patient trying to be, or as I should say, a, a caregiver, uh, trying to, you know, my being my dad's son while he was sick, 
Uh, and then, you know, subsequently, uh, after finding all the inefficiencies in the system, or, or at least understanding that there most certainly were a lot of inefficiencies in the system, I started uh, organized as a patient advocacy nonprofit, and we were um, awarded a position in the Secretary's Office of Health and Human Services uh, in the Obama years from 2015 to 2016. So I got to understand at first what it's like to be a patient, uh, and then, um, you know, subsequently got to, uh, I guess, graduate into uh, understanding, you know, what are all of the policy problems that, that, that are causing this, this weight? But what I can say from the patient experience is, you know, as much as I, I'm sure I could give feedback, and I'm sure this varies uh, hospital by hospital and, and certainly by people's race and ethnicity, uh, it, you know, and who they are and where they come from, people, of course, are treated differently. Um, there's a lot of things I could tell you could have been improved, but fundamentally what my dad needed was a heart. If you told me everything else about the patient experience would be uh, worse, you know, qualitatively, but my dad would have gotten a heart sooner, I'd take that, I'd take that trade, no pun intended, in, in a heartbeat. Uh, and then, so if you understand, you know, uh, understanding that what a patient's need is the organs, uh, the question then is, why are there not uh, nearly enough to go around? And that started to be uh, not just my passion project, but, uh, you know, turn into my uh, professional life uh, and, and a lot of the work that we advocate for. So to that to that point, why are there not enough to go around? I mean, there's the obviously the number of hearts that can be transplanted is a function of the number of people who pass who have uh, healthy hearts to to give, but then there's all kinds of noise and inefficiency in the system. And my sense is that you know, as a as an organizing entity, um, your goal at organize is not that there should be more people with healthy hearts who die. Your 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 goal is that um, the 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 majority, uh, as many as as possible, of those hearts can be harvested and extend lives. So can you can you tell us a little bit about how that system works? Why it is so inefficient, and 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 um, how you guys are thinking about it? Absolutely. And I'll start by just scaling this for people is uh, there's research that shows a fully efficient system. You could fully service the existing waiting list for uh, hearts, lungs and livers. And, you know, of course, in our family's hearts, but, uh, I, you know, um, clearly uh, care passionately about people that need uh, other organs as well. You can entirely service that waiting list within a couple of years. So wow. to know that my dad, you know, um, if the system had been well run, maybe, you know, would have waited a few weeks rather than five years. And I can't stress enough he was lucky to go through everything he went through and still get it after five years. Uh, uh, truly, the uh, for many, many people, the system doesn't work. My dad was as awful as it was, was one of the lucky ones. And there's some survivor biases as you hear people's stories about this. But the reason why there's such an inefficiency, I start to talk about organ transplants to people or organ donation. And I see everyone pull out their driver's license and they're so proud to show me that they've registered and they've uh, at the DMV and they have the heart on their license. And I sincerely hope that a lot of people do that or at least consider it if they want to do it. But what most people don't understand is there is a grossly inefficient of, uh, network of government monopoly contractors who are responsible for, if you die in an organ donation eligible way, and that's maybe 3% of deaths and it's strokes and traumas and opioid overdoses, uh, there's something called an organ procurement organization, and there's these, these government contractors, monopolies. Uh, uh, OPO is the is the acronym that's used. They're responsible for responding to all cases and then working with the family, uh, either to, if I had registered as an organ donor, to work with my family to you know go ahead, uh, hopefully, and proceed with my wishes. Uh, or if I wasn't a registered organ donor, legally, my family can still authorize it. And the biggest predictor of whether people become organ donors or not is really the strength of how well their, their local OPO, their, you know, uh, local OPO is run. And there's huge variability, uh, which stems from an, a lot of monopolism, uh, and, and, you know, a lack of accountability for, for severe failures. I, I want to unpack that a little bit. So what you're saying is that there are 
regional monopolies organizations. So, you know, one of a kind organizations that exist to procure um, eligible organs for transfer. And there's really no um, competition. Now, do you feel like it's the competition that's the issue or it's the inefficiency of those OPOs or it's the lack of standards that that force them to, uh, to, to adhere to to maintain that monopoly? Yes, it's you know it's a lot of compounding problems. Uh, OPOs, at least legislatively, has exi- have existed since 1984. They preceded that, but the legislative uh, infrastructure ha- has been around since. It's called the National Organ Transplant Act or NODA, which was passed in in 1984. Uh, and since then, OPOs, of course, you know we keep saying that they are monopolies, uh, geographic monopolies, which is true. So they have no competitive pressures uh, to perform well. Uh, but the thing that is you know just truly mind blowing is. Uh, OPOs, until actually this month is the first time they've gone into effect, uh, have operated in a system where the metrics by which their performance was evaluated were not legally enforceable, which is to say no matter how poorly an OPO performed, it could not lose its contract. Uh, And OPOs are also the only major program in healthcare that still operate on what's called a cost reimbursement uh, uh, basis, which means 100% reimbursed for all costs, regardless if they perform well or perform poorly, uh, or whether the money is spent on patient care or not. So there's no, there's been no pressures on OPOs at all uh, to perform well, uh, or even to perform adequately. And that's why you can have uh, an America where 90% of Americans say they support organ donation, and this grossly uh, inefficient and often conflicted uh, set of contractors, it's about 30%, 35% of potential uh, donors that they recover. And that's why you have this huge gap that can be 28,000 more people receiving life-saving transplants every year if you had accountability in the system. So what, in, in your mind, um, is the, the solution around uh, the, frankly, gross inefficiency of these OPOs? Should there be more competition? Should there be more enforcement uh, in terms of uh, meeting certain requirements? Uh, how, how should we solve this? Yeah, so it's, it's a good question. And there was new regulation that was finalized in November of 2020, and then again in in March of 2021, that for the first time will hold OPOs accountable for um, objective standards. Uh, as government contracting works, it didn't go into effect immediately. It actually starts to go into effect now, uh, uh, this month, and then it's four-year contracts. So it's actually not until 2026 uh, that any OPOs that are failing will lose their contracts. Uh, but that is fundamentally a really important first step. Uh, and the, the next very important thing that the Biden administration can do uh, is they need to, you know, strongly enforce the standards that uh, they've already finalized. There's a massive counter lobby from the OPO industry where they're trying to, you know, uh, weaken the standards that were in place. And it's really important that the Biden administration enforce the, the rule they've already put in place and then to go above and beyond uh, what they've done already with additional transparency standards. And if I could, I know that just sounds like a buzzword, but to unpack it uh, for a second. America is the only, of all international transplant programs, mature, mature programs, only America doesn't have the transparency that would allow you to see how many eligible deaths were referred to each OPO and how many they responded to. And one of the reasons that's important isn't just the basic uh, evaluate OPO performance, but OPOs are far less likely to respond to the same uh, uh, case if it's a black donor versus a white donor. There's a lot of inequities in the service, which isn't just a disservice, of course, to the donor families, but because same ethnicity matches matter if you're recovering 
fewer organs from communities of color on the donor side, there are just far fewer organs available for those same communities on the recipient side. Hmm. So walk me through this. Let's say an OPO loses its contract. They've operated as a monopoly for so long that there probably aren't other organizations waiting in the wings to take their place. And so what would happen in that situation? Who would step in to organize uh, the procurement if the one OPO that's been doing this for 37 years doesn't, it no longer meets the requirements for its contract? Like what would step in in the, in, in, in the void? So legislatively, it's a closed field, which is to say, think of the smartest 10 people you know, if they wanted to launch a startup uh, OPO and enter the market, they can't. So uh, it's confined to existing OPOs. That said, there is uh, what would technically happen is uh, an OPO in any area, if it, if it when it gets decertified or if and when it gets decertified, uh, any of the other, there are currently 57 OPOs, any of the other 56 in that case are allowed to take over their uh, service area, uh, which, you know, while I said what's before is true, no OPO has ever actually been decertified for, for uh, poor performance. Uh, that's different from saying no OPOs ever merged. Merged. There used to be 128 OPOs, and just through natural, you know, over the course of decades, for any number of reasons, OPOs have decided to merge with each other. Technically, that's what would happen if an OPO gets decertified. You know, a neighboring or other OPO might take it over. Uh, that's happened 71 times in history. It's a well-trod path. So that is what it would happen if you, you know, just pick any geography you could think of and just imagine the OPO next door uh, expands into its territory. And, you know, th- that's the way it works. And there's, there's no reason to believe that wouldn't be uh, a good path going forward. But if you follow that down the line, you end up in a situation where you have like OPO consolidation, which just increases the monopoly power and their ability to, to counter lobby. How do you know that the OPO that um, takes its place doesn't then, you know, as it tries to scale, um, replicate some of the same issues that the first one did. And I guess the question that I'm, I'm getting to is, what is the role of competition? Because the other side of that is, you know, back in the day, there used to be this 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 really interesting and really perverse uh, ambulance competition between different ambulances that would try and uh, pick up someone who was ill. And it would create this like really perverse sort of situation where you have monster ambulance traffic all going to one call and trying to, to pick up that body. And, and it wasn't always the best for the person uh, who was trying to be picked up. So I guess my question is, what is the role for, for competition if there is one? And then how would you coordinate that if there were to be one uh, in, in this space? Yeah, so a, a few questions. I'll try to, to uh, take them in turn. But, um, you know, the first most important point is, you know, I think what you're alluding to is if you keep uh, decertifying OPOs and consolidating them, do you get down to uh, just a small number? And, you know, if what we're trying to say is there's too much monopolism, are you exacerbating uh, the, the problem? I understand the spirit of that question. In practice, I think what's really important is my hope is not that I'm afraid of OPOs being decertified, but the hope isn't let's decertify a lot of OPOs. Uh, the issue is the way an OPO gets would get decertified over the current regulation isn't some subjective, I don't think you're good enough, I'm going to take your contract from you. Uh, it's the top 25% of OPOs set a benchmark and every other OPO would have to be within a degree of statistical significance. There's no reason that every OPO can't keep its contract uh, every cycle. And, you know, I think the theory of the case here is that in a world where they've had no standards or accountability before, uh, performance has been hugely lacking. And in a world where you impose standards, uh, they will all be better. And just to you know, give a, a specific example here, there's a 470% variability between the best and worst OPOs. That is not a variability you should accept anywhere in healthcare. Uh, when you uh, 
look at just a subset of black donors, there is a 10x variability. Uh, and what you have in this country, you know, if you think of uh, organ donation as a vital healthcare service, not just for the uh, donors who, you know, and their families who want their wishes on it, their legally binding wishes, end of life wishes, but also the recipients where it's literally life and death for them. There should not be this 500% variability and certainly not uh, for black donors, a, a, you know, 10x variability. Uh, and just by imposing these basic standards, the, you know, what we're trying to get to is a world where they can be reasonably as good as what the field is, uh, has already established is, is possible. So the hope isn't let's decertify all of them. The hope is that they all get better and they don't have to be decertified. That being said, there's no reason to fear decertification. And I think without the credible threat that you could lose your contract if you don't perform well, that's where you, you know, have all of these uh, hugely deficient practices. The other question that this raises is that there's a lot of data sharing that is privileged and private data. And some of these organizations haven't done a great job protecting that. Can you speak to some of the security concerns around OPOs and and, and what it'll take to um, to address those? Yeah, and there's, there's you know, I, I, you're asking particularly from the um, uh, uh, tech security, uh, which, which I'll come to. I also just want to make an important point, which animated a recent Senate, uh, fi- bipartisan Senate Finance Committee hearing, uh, and then actually got a, a, a corresponding front page uh, story in the Washington Post. Uh, OPOs, this is uh, astounding to me, but you do not have to have any clinical training to work at an OPO. So there's also a lot of patient safety issues. So I've never worked, I've never gone to med school. I, I you know, I, I don't even watch medical dramas. I could literally work for an OPO tomorrow uh, and start managing donor cases. Uh, deceased people are not legally considered people, so don't have the same protections. Uh, and that totally ignores uh, the idea that depending on how an OPO manages a case, there is ultimately a downstream recipient who very much is a living person. Uh, and if a case is mismanaged, uh, uh, recipients can die or otherwise uh, be harmed because of it. So I know your question is about IT security. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that too. But I think the, you know, one of the biggest threats to, to patients is the, you know, just the patient safety. Surely, though, if you're harvesting an organ, you have to be a surgeon, right? Uh, yeah, so they'll... they'll They'll contract with surgeons who don't necessarily, they're not necessarily uh, transplant surgeons. And also there's a lot of management of the case, you know, before you even get to the uh, organ recovery. And I'll just give you one example. The South Carolina OPO misidentified, uh, you know, a donor's blood type uh, and sent the organs out for transplant. Uh, it, tur- it turns out uh, that, uh, you know, the, the donor's uh, widow ended up suing. And it turned out uh, in discovery in the case the chief medical officer for the OPO was not licensed to practice medicine in the state of South Carolina uh, and only spent, you know, just a few minutes reviewing the case. So, you know, what you have is, you know, these generally, well, I should say in some cases, in the worst cases, you can have completely untrained people who are misreading, you know, reviewing blood work of people that have been uh, hemodialyzed and maybe misread something. And if you don't have the controls in place and you don't have clinical professionals uh, reviewing every case, uh, there are gross patient safety issues that can occur. And the front, Washington Post did a front page story saying 70 people uh, in just a seven uh, year period uh, died because of completely preventable errors. And then and then there's the cybersecurity issue. Can you, can you walk us through that one? Yeah. So we've been talking about OPOs. There's another uh, organization at issue here, and they're actually the one that's under investigation from the Senate Finance Committee uh, called UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing. And they've had, they also have had a monopoly contract uh, managing uh, this since 
uh, contract was created legislatively in 1984. Unos has had it uh, since 1986 uh, as not only a monopoly as they've had it, but they're the only contractor to ever even not just win the contract and run the contract, but to even bid on the contract. Uh, and over those, you know, 40 years, uh, you know, lack of competition, so many things have just completely ossified and, 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 and are just nowhere close to industry standards. So just to um, put this in technicolor, and then I'll answer your question about the tech security, uh, UNOS is, uh, after an organ is recovered, uh, sent to a transplant center, uh, you know, uh, for ultimate transplant, UNOS is 15 times more likely to lose or damage an organ in transit than an airline is your luggage. It's just, I mean, just so far beyond, or to say behind what has been established as, uh, you know, standard in, in so many different uh, facets that UNOS is uh, charged with. But one of which is they have this uh, technology system, which, you know, to your question earlier about very sensitive patient data is stored in UNOS' system about uh, patients, you know, medical records and blood type and, you know, all sorts of issues. Uh, the United States Digital Service, which is, I don't know if all uh, listeners necessarily be familiar, but uh, is basically the top uh, public sector technologists, and they're uh, based in the White House, did a review of Eunice's technology, and they titled their ultimate report, which the Washington Post uh, covered, Lives Are at Stake. Government reports generally aren't titled things called, like, Lives Are at Stake. It's normally, you know, sort of anodyne titles, but this was, I think, their way of just highlighting, you know, bolding, just call, trying to call attention to how screaming of a problem this was. Uh, and when the Senate Finance Committee uh, read this report, they ended up writing to writing a letter to uh, Department of Homeland uh, uh, Securities talking about sort of urgent national security threats, uh, as the Washington Post uh, uh, covered it, because of just huge insecurities and vulnerabilities uh, in the system. Uh, and all of this, just, you know, coming back to the same point, is when you don't have any uh, standards or competitive pressures for 40 years, this is what you end up with. Things just completely fall apart. And, you know, just to, to, to put a fine point on this, the, the issue here is that, you know, once you build a system, let's say in the 80s and 90s, and there is no risk that you have to losing your contract, you just allow that system to persist and persist and persist. And there's been a lot that's changed um, since the 80s and 90s about, you know, logistics and the ability to, um, to to leverage the best of technology to improve efficiency and effectiveness in something as fundamental and critical as whether or not a organ that someone has willingly uh, allowed to be harvested will go and save a life. And, you know, the, the, the point that you put on the probability of an organ being damaged or being lost uh, in transit, I think is is newly has new relevance in a moment where you know we're thinking about airlines right now and the challenge of, of flying or losing your luggage. And people have all had that experience of losing a piece of luggage. Now imagine that piece of luggage isn't just a couple of shirts and pants uh, and a shaver or two. It's 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 a heart and the difference between whether or not that person who is waiting for one will get one or not. Um, and you know you 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 then maximize and you think about the collective. System that is that, that that creates this this sort of mind boggling um, mind boggling level of incompetence uh, that we've allowed to persist. I guess you know we talked about OPOs and the the consolidation that could happen if they were to lose their license, but you know so there's only one of them. So how do you hold a singular organization with such a critical function accountable 
um, when there really is no other uh, organization like it? Uh, so the one place I'll push back is I don't know that there aren't other organizations like it. Uh, you know, if you think about what UNOS does, there's a bunch of discrete functions, which I guess are related thematically under the banner of its organ transplant. But there's logistics and shipping organs. There's, uh, you know, technology. There's oversight. There's policymaking. If you break this up into discrete functions, you know, I... I uh, which uh, was, uh, I think, one of the most animating recommendations that's so far come out of the Senate Finance Committee. I think discrete, you know, biddable, uh, discrete contracts, uh, so many organizations uh, would be better than, you know, at any of the ind- individual functions. When you start to say, does somebody want every one of these functions, you start to limit the pool a little bit, you know. I think if you ask any you know health tech organization, uh, would they be better than you know set the IT component and do they want it? I think you'd probably have a lot of bidders. If you start to say, do you also want all, all these other ancillary, unrelated uh, functions other than that it's you know thematically transplant? That's where you limit the pool. But one of the fundamental things from the administration, the, from finance committee, is you got to separate this contract and bid it out competitively. That makes a lot of sense. So you could imagine a world where FedEx is the uh, is the logistical shipper. Right, and they probably do a much better job than than Unos does. They do this every day, all day. Um, I want to I want to zoom into a couple of issues here before we get to the the, the ultimate conversation about the um, Senate Finance Committee hearings and, and where we head from here. You, you talked a bit about the implications of 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 this system for health inequities. You know, we do know that the, the the risk of organ rejection goes up when you're talking about cross-ethnic or cross-racial uh, organ transplant, which then suggests that you really want donors um, who share as much as possible. And that's why, you know, if you can get a, a kidney donated, for example, from uh, a living family member, that's always the best approach. But the implications of of logistical failure is really quite profound when you think about smaller communities um, for whom the chances of getting a donor and uh, and matching an organ is so limited. Can, can you walk us through how communities of color have uh, have taken up this mantle, have, have advocated around this issue and, and where the conversation is there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there have, uh, of course, been some terrific uh, patient advocates. And we've been talking about the Senate Finance Committee. There was also last year, the House Oversight Committee uh, did an investigation uh, or still doing investigation, but last fall, uh, May, did a hearing into OPOs, and there were two uh, incredible pertinent to this conversation, uh, women of color uh, who were in need of kidney transplants that were uh, self-advocating. I think what's been really encouraging in the last couple of years has seen this, uh, seeing this go from not just patients, the word I use is self-advocating, but to listen to see congressional leaders uh, and other equity leaders really take up the mantle and start to advocate for them. So, you know, there's been um, leaders from the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, Karen Bass, uh, or I should say uh, Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass, when she was chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, was fantastic on this issue. Uh, Ayanna Presley, Cory Bush, uh, Hank Johnson, there have been some really great uh, CBC leaders who've been advocating for this. And, you know, one of the most, you know, vocal um, leaders on it also from an equity perspective has been Ben Jealous, who was a past president of the NAACP. But it's been really great uh, seeing this transition, or I should say grow from not, you know, patient self-advocating. I know that it's great. What an unfair burden to put on a patient to also, in addition to managing their own care, have to self-advocate for policy reform. And it's been really great to see uh, congressional and other equity leaders take up the fight for them. And now to uh, the, the question at hand in the, in the Senate Finance Committee, can you walk us through where the conversation is right now and uh, what you're hoping to see come out of the Senate Finance Committee hearings? 
Yeah, so you know uh, they did a hearing in, in uh, on August third, a bipartisan hearing, uh, and I'll say Chairman uh, Ron Wyden ended the hearing with you know some version of you know letting everyone know investigation is absolutely uh, just gaining steam from here, and they're going to start looking at the government agencies that have uh, been overseeing this for uh, some number of years. And I think what's really important is going from investigations, of course, as they do find things, uh, then they inform recommendations. The question then is, do they get implemented? Uh, and, you know, it's up to the Biden administration to enforce not just OPO transparency uh, and accountability, uh, but the contract that UNOS uh, holds is called the Organ Procurement Transplantation Network contract, the OPTN contract. Uh, that's up uh, for bidding next year. Uh it's really important that the Biden administration follow through on the recommendations that have come from come from the Senate finance investigation uh, and put out a competitive cycle uh, for that for that contract. And just, you know, to really underscore, I know we've talked about this, but what the state of play is like, you know, I'd mentioned the House oversight last year uh, hearing there was a fantastic whistleblower, an OPO CEO, and his line, just so everyone understands the status quo, his line is, that OPOs and government contractors are getting blank checks and part- uh, participation trophies while uh, patients are getting death sentences. It's just is mm. truly, truly dire. Uh, and, you know, it's long overdue uh, that we, you know, government really lean in and, and put patients first. Greg, I, I really appreciate you coming uh, onto our show to, to educate us about the uh, organ transplantation system, the, the inefficiencies and ineffectiveness of that system and in the effort to address it. And of course, your work uh, at the front lines of of advocacy um, to make sure that that happens. Uh, this our, our guest today was Greg Siegel. He is uh, the co-founder of Organize. Greg, where can folks go to learn more about your work to get involved? Uh, Organize.org uh, is our website, and I hope to see a lot of traffic. All right, fantastic. Greg, thank you so much uh, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Abdul. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Take a listen to what Dr. Anthony Fauci had to say about the future of COVID-19 vaccines. It is becoming increasingly clear that looking forward with the COVID-19 pandemic, in the absence of a dramatically different variant, we likely are moving towards a path with a vaccination cadence similar to that of the annual influenza vaccine, with annual updated COVID-19 shots matched to the currently circulating strains for most of the population. As many of us had predicted, COVID vaccines will become annual boosters that we take for an updated bump of immunity in the highest risk season. Scientists will update the boosters like they do the flu vaccine based on the most common variants in that season. Don't get me wrong, we're not yet out of the pandemic era of COVID-19, but we will be. And this is what that looks like. Early in the pandemic, Republicans advocating against COVID mitigation compared COVID to the flu to minimize it. But COVID was then plugging up our hospitals, killing thousands every day, and we had no effective treatments or vaccines. It's killed over a million Americans since. But as we approach a potential end of the pandemic, the highest probability endgame for COVID will be that it probably looks a lot like the seasonal flu. Which, might I remind you, takes tens of thousands of lives every single year, and many of those deaths are preventable deaths. And that's because so few people get their flu vaccines. And on that note, it's never possible to know anything for certain, but it's highly likely that this will be a pretty tough flu year. After all, most of the restrictions in place over the past few years that protected us from COVID were also protecting us from the flu. So consider this your annual reminder to get the flu vaccine alongside your forthcoming bivalent COVID booster. Despite the fact that the administration is rolling out a new booster, Congress has yet to fund the resources we'll need for the fall. 
It's not just funding for the vaccines. It's funding for testing, for treatments, for hospitals. It's funding that the administration has been asking for all summer. Last week, the administration renewed their request for $74 billion from Congress, though given the composition of the current Senate, it's unlikely that it'll get funded. Absent congressional funding, the administration is hedging by trying to force the funding of new COVID vaccines onto the private sector through health insurance companies. In effect, asking them to pay for beneficiaries' COVID vaccines, testing, and treatments, where, of course, the federal government had been paying for this. But, of course, the problem here is, well, not everyone in America is insured. Which is, of course, another reminder that we really need Medicare for All. Finally, a few months ago, I talked to Lauren Etter, the author of The Devil's Playbook, about the ways that Juul Laboratories went from a smoking cessation tool to a whole generation of teens' introduction to nicotine addiction. To recap, after a round of venture capital funding and an investment from Philip Morris, yes, that Philip Morris, in pursuit of profit, Juul looked for new customers beyond those looking to just quit smoking. Turning to influencer marketing and flavoring their pods, they got millions of teens hooked on their product, with 28% of teens vaping by 2019. Well, this week, Juul is finally facing the consequences. They just reached a settlement with 34 states and territories that will have them pay $438.5 million for their malfeasance. This after the FDA banned them from the American market, though that ruling has been challenged in court. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review the show. It really goes a long way. And if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you drop by the Crooked Store for some American Dissected merch. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts, our Science Always Wins sweatshirts, and dad caps are available on sale. American Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producer is Tara Terpstra. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz and Inez Mata. The theme song is by Takai Asuzawa and Alex Huguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 